Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of movie scores that are considered worth talking about, and with the help of our listeners, we're assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Michael Giacchino's score for the 2004 Pixar animated superhero family adventure movie, The Incredibles. The Incredibles was produced at Pixar by John Walker, and it was written and directed by Brad Bird. John, what's The Incredibles about? Why, it's a vibrantly computer-animated movie about a family of superheroes who live in a fun and kinetic 1960s mid-century chic kind of world. The family is Craig T. Nelson as Bob Parr, a.k.a. Mr. Incredible, who's really, really strong, Holly Hunter as Helen Parr, a.k.a. Elastigirl, who can stretch her body like rubber. Sarah Vowell as Violet Parr, their daughter who can turn invisible and generate force fields. And Spencer Fox as Dash Parr, their son who can run really, really fast. Also stars Jason Lee as Syndrome, the bad guy. Samuel L. Jackson as Frozone, their superhero friend of the family. Elizabeth Pena as Mirage, assistant to the bad guy. And director Brad Bird as Edna Mode, the costume designer. In a world that's so overrun with superheroes that the government bans superhero activity and forces the heroes into hiding and to give up their powers, the Pars live as a regular family that's under some tension from having to suppress their abilities, but then a new threat emerges that makes them have to work together in new ways to save the family and to save the day. Good enough? Good enough. Okay, out with it, Andy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's get this out of the way, all right? Let's make sure to get everybody's backs up as soon as they start listening. (laughs) Oh, no, no. I really like this movie, and I think I understand that you like it less than I do. John, all right, look. Early on, you know, weeks ago, I just said to you in private, look, I think I have some reservations about this that are not widely held, and I already don't want to have to talk about it because people love this movie. I remember when we did Bullet and you were like, why do I have to get up here and complain about something? Who wants to listen to that? (laughs) You know, I look on Rotten Tomatoes. This movie has a 97% positive rating. This is as beloved as movies get. So I was just mentioning it to you as a thing that was weighing on me. Not like I have a crusade against this movie that I have to go on. Yeah, well, it weighing on you has been weighing on me. So let's hash this out. Oh, gosh, I was hoping that we would say a bunch of nice and normal stuff about it first. But no. There's apparently no room for that. Basically, all right, let's talk about it right here. You just summarized the movie. What is the message of this movie to you? What is the lesson? What is the moral? What is the point of The Incredibles? Because I have always felt like, I don't know about what The Incredibles is saying, but I would love to be talked out of it. So tell me what the takeaway from The Incredibles should be. Yeah, I think it's a lovely and positive takeaway about 
you know, like standard Disney movie kind of stuff. Be true to yourself and accept people for who they are. Embrace a diversity of people, of personalities. Give and take with one another and combine your talents with the people around you in a spirit of companionship and camaraderie rather than going it alone. Come together to help people rather than thinking that you can do everything by yourself. No? I mean, what is, what, what's your takeaway? What rubbed you the wrong way? I guess a movie that would be absolutely easy to take and that I would get to enjoy without this kind of niggling feeling that something was awry would be one where, as teenagers, these characters, Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl, they can do anything. They're superheroes. They're amazing. And then we cut forward to midlife. They're holding down a boring job and they've got bills to pay and they've got kids to support. Their bodies have aged. They just feel like, oh, we're boring now. What happened to us? That's a universal issue that happens to everyone, and then it can be about rediscovering the sense of identity. And that's almost what this movie is. But there's this other element threaded through the whole thing, and it keeps making me go, oh. uh," That the answer to the question, how did this happen to us, is, well, it was done to us by society because we're the Incredibles, because we're amazing, because we're objectively superior. And in this society, we're basically surrounded by a lot of losers with whiny voices who just hate power because you know how losers are. And they try to drag you down and they try to sell you this pap about how everyone is special, which everyone knows is obviously a lie because only some people are actually special. Us, the superheroes. And, you know, there's a spinning newspaper that says they've outlawed superheroics. Basically, they pass a law saying you can't be a vigilante superhero anymore. And then the movie just conflates that with you can't be you anymore. You can't be amazing anymore. You can't run fast or be strong. You have to hide all of your talents and abilities. And that's an uncomfortable conflation. Yeah, there's just some attitudes here that are problematic to me in the real world and so seeing them in a pixar movie i just gets my guard up feels like a weird foreign object uh in a kid's movie so yeah that's basically it talk me out of it i'd like to think that i can talk you out of it because i really don't believe that there's any kind of insidious agenda of i don't even know what that uh i'm not saying it's insidious or an agenda but it seems to be making an appeal to the audience to identify with an annoyance about all of those non-incredibles. And that's weird to me. And I think, okay, how am I supposed to relate to superheroes in the first place? I identify with them, right? I'm super in my way. So I think that the function of superhero-ness in this movie, I think it's actually remarkably similar to a different movie that we've talked about very recently. Hmm. What could that be? We haven't done that many superhero movies. Very recently. Yeah, very recently. In fact, another Disney animated one that we talked about recently. Oh, Encanto. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, tell me more. Yeah. In Encanto, why? There is a family of superpowered people. And we talked about how the magical powers that they have in that movie are a 
magical realism style metaphor for people's family roles. And I think uh, The Incredibles, you know, got to that first. I definitely think that that was Brad Bird's original idea, was to take the family roles of these people and magnify them, amplify them into superpowers. I mean, you don't have to look very hard at their specific powers to map them onto very generic family role kind of things. There's the big, strong head of the family man. There's the mother who's stretched in every direction, literally, by the demands of being a mid-century housewife. There's the teenage girl who wishes she could disappear and put up a force field around her, you know, because she feels awkward and out of place. There's the little kid who is full of energy and vim and vigor and runs everywhere all the time. And then there's the little baby who is full of unlimited potential Mm -hmm. and his powers aren't formed yet, but it turns out that he can do anything and is unpredictable. So, you know, taking those kinds of family dynamics and rendering them as superpowers, we we liked it in Encanto. That's what Brad Bird is doing here. So the message of the movie is then that people's individual dynamics and what makes them who they are shouldn't be quashed. There shouldn't be a forced conformity. Instead, they should be embraced and the individual personality dynamics are to be celebrated. So yes, that sounds beautiful. And you're right. Those metaphors for family roles are really nicely embodied in what The Incredibles are, which is in many ways modeled on what the Fantastic Four were, which was in its way supposed to be a metaphor for a family. So he's bringing that full circle. And yes, it all works well. Yes. But in Encanto, the forces that challenge and threaten the family come from internal denials or self constraints or sort of these kind of passive aggressive energies that pass from one person to another and cause cracks in the house. In The Incredibles, what is causing them to self-suppress? It certainly seems like the movie is proposing that, well, it happened because the world today has too many darn sniveling twits who want to sue each other, like this suicidally depressed guy who's not even grateful that he was prevented from committing suicide. Ugh! And Bob's boss, who tells him that a company is like clockwork where everything, the gears have to fit together. Ugh, give me a break. And worst of all, this bad guy who doesn't actually have anything that makes him incredible. We've seen him as a kid. He's very obviously a twerp. But then... Uh Uh-oh, instead of just facing the fact that he is a worthless twerp, he gets so resentful that he makes his life about avenging himself on us, his betters. These are the problems. These are the problems that beset a family. And yes, that they have to learn to work together so that they can fend off a world full of this kind of stuff. That just feels to me like a lie. Like, that's not where family problems come from. Yeah, I just don't think that there's anything meant by the way the story mechanics are set up. Everybody has to come to grips with their own powers, which can be assets or liabilities. That's where the internal conflicts come from. And then the role of the external forces around them, if it's anything, 
Yeah, I think it is the idea of enforced homogeneity in the society and conformity. You know, it very strikingly takes place in, you know, an early 60s kind of vibe. And I think it's a commentary on cookie cutter American lifestyle that supposed that everybody was the same and made it hard for people to be themselves. And, you know, I feel like it's even to spell it out loud makes it sound hokier than it is. But yeah, it's, you know, be true to yourself. Don't think that everybody in society has to be the same. And furthermore, I read that Syndrome, the head villain in this movie, was not part of the original script or had a much smaller role in the original script. There was a different bad guy in Brad Bird's original pitch to Pixar, and the studio responded better to this character. And so, you know, it's all a soup that emerges out of disparate parts, and I just don't think there's a design to something that there needs to be some ulterior motive to. I'm not attributing necessarily a design or an agenda, but... It's making an appeal to an attitude that I think is a harmful one in the real world. And I wish a Pixar movie weren't making an appeal to that when there's friction between you and the world, when there's criticism of you or you have a hard time getting along uh, or feeling comfortable, the answer is, well, this is really about the fact that I'm better than you, right? Uh, And that's just like the foundational premise of the movie. So... Yeah, I'm not comfortable with it. Yeah, I just I just don't have a problem there. And I'm glad to report that I am definitely right. <laughs> no, I don't appreciate that. Well, look, whatever my issues may be, and whether or not I'm wrong, I can comfortably say I hold none of it against... Michael Giacchino or his score. In fact, I think that the score makes the best possible case for the movie, elevates what's going on in the movie, finds the right emotional meanings for things, and I suspect may have made the movie palatable to more people than it would have been had the music not been so great. So let's talk about how good the music is. Okay, I'm really glad to hear that because, yeah, this immediately jumped into my rotation of favorite scores to listen to. As soon as I saw it, as soon as it came out, I was just so struck with this. As far as, you know, bringing out the right tones and emotions and attitudes from the movie, you know, I actually saw a video of Giacchino at a Q&A or something, and he was telling the story of when he first but, got this uh, job. When Brad Bird, who directed that film, hired me, he said to me, he goes, you know, welcome aboard. I'm really excited to have you. This is going to be the hardest job you've ever had. And I was like, okay, that's, I'm, I'm up for that. I'm ready for that. And he said, and your music could ruin my movie. <laughs> And I was like, wow, that's, that's a great way to start out this relationship. And he said, I said, well, I, I, I'll do my best. He goes, no, what I mean is, if you and I are not hand in hand in the storytelling every single step of the way, the audience is going to start feeling and thinking something that we don't want them to feel or think. So he and I have to make sure that whatever moves I make musically and whatever moves he makes story-wise are in sync all the time. Brad Bird told him, I don't want people to think the wrong things about what we're trying to say in this movie. The music's going to guide them to enjoying it the way I want them to enjoy it, which of course is, you know, a great attitude for a director to have about the score. That's exactly correct, what a score can do and should be thought about doing. And I think it's to Bird's credit that he understood that and communicated it to his composer. But I wonder if he actually presaged some of the issues that you were having as things that he wanted to sidestep 
because I just think that they just fall out of the other parts of the story. It's just all put in place so that this story with this family can happen. Maybe he knew that there was a possible pitfall. Yeah, I'm saying that I think that they emerged into the movie because of an emotional framework, the, you know, the psychological framework that he or whoever we want to attribute these things to brought to the movie. It seemed spontaneous to them. And then when it was in front of them on paper, they were able to see, oh, gosh, we, we seem to kind of be saying this. But boy, that's not how it felt. So some music, hopefully, will be able to convey how it felt to us. And, and it does. And it does. And it's not Giacchino's fault that I can still remember things that aren't encoded in the music. But he absolutely nails what the music should be doing. For example, at the beginning, the inciting incident when Mr. Incredible saves a suicidal jumper mid-jump catches him in the air and crashes into a building. A suicidal jumper is usually played as a horrific, tragic thing. That's very dark. It's dark for a Pixar movie. And the music here plays it as another awesomely comic book threat. It's got a jazzy beat. The drums are going. It's got the trumpets doing this growling, wah-wah, muted thing that we'll talk about all of its connotations. It's playing the darkness, but uh, an enticing, thrilling darkness of the comic book adventure. And if you want to step back and say, well, who is that guy? And what? <laughs> when Mr. Incredible apparently breaks his neck, and Mr. Incredible says, well, with counseling, I think you'll come to forgive me. I think you broke something. Well, with counseling, I think you'll come to forgive me. Which, uh, I, <laughs> that line makes me feel weird. But yeah, when he doesn't forgive him and sues him, there is kind of a feeling for the audience of, oh, this is interrupting something. This is getting it wrong. This guy is misrepresenting what that was emotionally because we know what it sounded like. It, sound, it was this. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. To question any of this, you have to be bringing something other than what the movie is bringing because the music is showing you what that was to the people who wrote and made the movie and making it as fun as possible and Giacchino is on target with each of these kinds of decisions so much that they become invisible mm. like you have to be reminded that there's another way of thinking about suicide <laughs> than this wah 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 because it's just so convincing. I think that's super impressive throughout this whole score, especially because, as we'll talk about, the whole style is kind of referential. The whole style is retro. Yeah. As I've said elsewhere, I, I find retro a touchy business and not always satisfying. And even given that kind of remove from the authentic musical culture, Giacchino always makes things mm. land and convince you and draw you in. And that's, as a matter of craft, very, very impressive. Yeah, Invisible is right. He's working in this genre, and yeah, you're right, the movie is completely referential to, you know, 60s comic books and spy movies, from its visual aesthetic, its costumes, and the kinds of stuff that happens in it. The bad guy's lair is explicitly, you know, reference to James Bond villains, other things from the 60s, you know, stuff that Brad Bird grew up loving. And so he wanted music that is in that same world, but exactly right, Giacchino just does it so confidently and skillfully that it feels necessary. It feels like the obvious way to do it. I think that's what I loved about this score as soon as I heard it, is that it's doing everything a score needs to do. It's telling the story, it's telling the emotions, it's charting the arc of the character's experiences and their growth, and it's doing it all in this language of 
mid-century spy movie big band jazz-inflected orchestra that is literally my <laughs> my favorite thing. I've actually th- <laughs> I've thought about this. I think that the sound of a big band really cooking with its horn section and rhythm and all these moving parts that have to be tuned so precisely to sound right. I really believe that that sound, just the sheer, you know, audio quality meeting my ear moment for moment. I think that's the best sound. I think that that is the best sound that there is. True big band or this kind of movie score orchestral mix? Both. Yeah, this question only makes sense because you said it's the best. <laughs> I mean, you can love two things, but only one can be the best. Well, I mean, there's a string section in this that wouldn't be in an actual big band band. Right, but there's also, you know, xylophones and there's effects. The point of reference for this score, first and foremost, is James Bond scores by John Barry, right? Oh, absolutely. Unmistakably it is. Right. Which is, uh, you know, it's on a family tree that real big band music is on, but it's a branch aside. Sure, yes. It's a branch in which the big band sound, which I guess, you know, really does come down to this array of horns. There's four trumpets, and there's three or four trombones, and saxophones of various shapes and sizes. You put them together, spell the chords throughout the section. You've got the drum and bass, piano filling the chords. I genuinely think that there's not a better sound to hear. Laugh all you like. (laughs) Just the world of sound. It's quite a world. Includes birds singing. And, yeah, this uh, is better. And water rippling. Ugh, nonsense. And, yeah. But the water rippling has like barely any rhythm. Mm-hmm. Can't dance to it. No, no, I'm serious. These instruments got put together over the course of decades of experimentation and the necessities of making it, yeah, danceable and letting you hear all the parts that you needed to hear, grouping it together, making the overall composite of the sound just right because it was business, because these kinds of bands needed to get the work done. They were on the ground and had to put this music across. And it takes such a specialized skill to array these horns just so, to calibrate the dissonances, because you can't just write a triad. If you go to write this kind of stuff, you quickly find that, well, how do you make it have that crunch and that wail and that groove? There are very specific rules of what notes to tweak and twirl, how to arrange the chords and spread them out over the different sections of instruments. It's just the best. It's the best. And I love this score because he takes that and makes it the obvious language for this story to play out in and gets real scoring work done at the same time as it sounds so great. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, like a crackling fire, <laughs> wind through the trees. Yeah, uh, forget them. <laughs> they can go jump in a lake, which is also not as good a sound. Yeah, the sound of someone jumping in a lake, what a lovely... It's fine, but it's no big band. And then, yes, this palette is a branch off of that tree that absolutely was pioneered by John Barry for the James Bond films, in which there is also a string section. 
and there are a few more wind instruments that wouldn't be in a straight jazz big band. There are some French horns, you know, flutes. And it's a lot of flute. There's a lot of flute, right, yeah. Barry makes the flute into a real thing for this kind of movie. I saw Barry saying that he came up with the particular sounds he picked for the James Bond scores, a lot of trombones, a lot of xylophones and trumpets, because mm-hmm. he really wanted people to notice his music, and he knew there were going to be sound effects in this movie, so he tried to write all his music, you know, at the top and the bottom, so that no matter how much sound effect there were, he would still be making an impression. And it worked. Yeah. Should we dig in a little bit more to just how much this owes to John Barry? Because, in fact, Brad Bird knew dead on from the get-go when he started to make this movie that that was the sound that he wanted, so much so that he approached John Barry to write the score for the movie. Yeah, I imagine he'd been, you know, playing the James Bond soundtrack as he wrote or mapped it out or they started working on the movie. You always have some kind of musical sort of image in mind, and it's so clear that that was the image here. In fact, when they made the teaser trailer, which is a year before the movie is done, none of the score had been written yet, Brad Bird used the actual theme from Barry's score to On Her Majesty's Secret Service Maybe just a salad. to accompany Mr. Incredible trying to buckle his belt over his gut. So he was definitely committed to the movie sounding like this. Yeah, what a coup it would have been to get the real John Barry to do it. But uh, John Barry basically said no. Well, he actually said yes at first. He started working with Bird, and he actually wrote some material, but it turned out to be not as action-y as Bird was hoping, and I think also Barry wasn't really comfortable working with animation. They wound up parting ways. I think it just wasn't the right fit for Barry at this point in his career. He didn't want to just rehash stuff that he had done in previous decades. Yeah, he didn't want to write a retro score because you don't want to go retro on yourself. Mm -hmm. That's hard and weird. Yeah. In fact, John Barry's last few James Bond scores, which he was writing into the 80s anyway, I think, I forget when his last one was, but it's, you know, one of the ones in the 80s, the Living Daylights or something. They sound a little tired, like he's not sure what to be doing with this anymore, because when he came up with it in the 60s, that was the going thing. It wasn't about trying to be 60s-y or Mm -hmm. remind you of the James Bond sound. That was just the sound that was his real answer to the movies. It's just a different creative task to say, we want to resemble this other culture because that's our objective. And I can imagine that John Barry felt like, I I don't do that. I write John Barry music. I don't write, you know, James Bondy music. Yeah, but what I am so impressed with the way that Giacchino did it, yes, it's certainly modeled on John Barry, and I think we'll probably wind up pointing out specific cues that he wrote are modeled on specific cues that John Barry wrote. But I still don't think that it feels like he's doing a retro thing. I think he is genuinely doing it for real, using this sound for the great sound that it is. I think he's doing both, which is what retro aspires to be, and it's so seldom pulled off. Because that's really hard. It's hard to both know about something and love it because it's in the culture that was delivered to you not the living culture but the old culture and at the same time enter into it embody it and express yourself through it fully because those are usually at odds i think the last time we really talked about retro or at least the last time i complained about retro was uh last year when we talked about mank yeah. for the oscars episode 
I felt like that movie and that score were full of obvious affection and excitement about an old style. Mm -hmm. But very little inhabiting of that style to give us something to relate to directly in the present moment. But if they had completely just inhabited the style, it would have missed out on an essential element of the point there, which was to be looking backward to remember the past. Doing both of those things at once is hard. It takes a certain temperament not to get too nerdy with the thing you're nerding out about. I noticed that Michael Giacchino's Twitter bio is nerd film composer, and I think he is the best at this. I think he is the guy who is the most able to be doing something that's all about a prior generation's style, and yet be doing it right in front of you in a way where you don't feel that it's all a kind of a costume party exercise. His nerdy interest in it is so closely wedded to his authentic musicianship that he can make these sales that most people can't make. Mm. And I think, you know, Brad Bird picked the right guy. He really lucked out. Because Giacchino, this is his first film score. It's incredible. This is his feature film debut. He came up writing music for video games really was where he got his start and then bird picked him because he liked the score to alias the tv show that chicchino was scoring at the time yeah i think the story i've read about how chicchino rose up was that he was working at the dreamworks video game production wing Mm -hmm. he had put together some temporary music for the game they were making of the lost world a tie-in game to the steven spielberg jurassic park sequel When Spielberg was reviewing the game in progress, he heard the music and said, you've got actual good music in here. You should actually record that. And allotted budget and called up Chikino and said, your music is so good, you should record it with a real orchestra, which was not what they were necessarily going to do at the time. So I feel like that sort of characterizes who Chikino is. When given an assignment to just kind of imitate something, he does it so well that people say, oh, you, you've done a thing unto itself here. Yeah. This stands apart. And you know, and I know, when given the task to imitate something, it's relatively easy to produce something that anyone would say, yeah, you imitated that real good. I'm, I'm going to push back on that. It, it's not easy. All right. Everything is hard. It, <laughs> it is a substantial assignment of craft to, as you said, if you want to write something that sounds like big band, boy, you have to really understand how big band works. Yeah. Even if you do all of that, It's still so easy to end up with something that sounds like some very conscientious imitation. And Giacchino has a gift for being given that assignment and then writing something that feels like a Michael Giacchino composition that has its own energy and spirit and value. I'm not sure how he does it. I agree. He's done that his whole career. I mean, it's probably pretty obvious that I am intensely jealous of this particular (laughs) assignment that he got. Imitate this. You know, here's a stack of James Bond cues that they clearly put in their temp. Yeah. He was told, imitate this. First, I think he did a fantastic job. I think he wrote music, even if you can tell that it's an imitation of specific things, I think it's almost always better than the thing that he was asked to imitate. (laughs) And the immersion and reverse engineering that's necessary to imitate something like that is so much fun. I genuinely enjoy it when I am asked to imitate something pretty explicitly. Getting inside of something to know how it works and then to make something else work the same way is intensely satisfying to me. 
being asked to, to do this. Oh, what a dream. What a dream assignment. I remember when this movie came out, I got to attend a special screening of it that was followed by a Q&A with the man himself, with Chiquino. I was the twerp who, <laughs> who stood up in the Q&A. I don't even remember what my cue was. I basically just came up with some random thing to ask as an excuse to be the guy who stood up and said, uh, first of all, I'd like to say that I was a big fan of your work on Secret Weapons Over Normandy, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was a combat flight simulator computer game from LucasArts mm-hmm. back in, what was it, early 2000s that has great music that he wrote the music for. He, you know, took it upon himself to imitate old war movie music, stuff like Where Eagles Dare, I remember him quoting as an influence on something that he tried to inhabit. But listen to this. If you were playing a flight simulator computer game with this music, what a great time you would have. Yeah, I mean, those scores, it really sounds like someone who is auditioning to get big movies. And, yeah. you know, he passed the audition. I mean, that's what he said was his method for writing scores for video games is pretend you're writing a score for a big movie. Imagine there's a movie scene, you know, because when you're writing for video games, you don't get to score the picture because the picture, you know, is obviously going to be generated on the spur of the moment by the player. So you have to write for an imagination of what the picture could be. His method is to imagine a film scene and score that scene. And it's clear. It's clear that he obviously had the chops to imagine and score film scenes. I do want to apologize, though, for being such a twerp as to, you know, stand up in that screening and make such a big show of <laughs> of being the guy who had uh, who had heard of the band before they hit it big. <laughs> Incredible boy. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> but he didn't eject or seat you. Sounds like he was very... I wasn't quite that creepy, I would like to think. Maybe I was. But again, that, there are so many young aspiring composers whose heads are full of movies and want indeed to imagine a movie scene and write the music that would be in the imaginary movie scene. I know what that impulse is like. It is just rare for me to hear that music and not think, yes, this sounds like your head is full of movie music and then you wrote what was in your head. And when I hear Giacchino's music, it feels like I'm meeting the real thing. I'm not at a costume party. I'm at the movies right now. You know, it goes back to Star Wars we talked about. There's been a heavy nostalgia factor in big movies for 40 years now. It's just really hard to navigate. It's hard to live in a postmodern culture and not also sound like what you're doing is tired and not contributing anything new. Giacchino just has a, he has a knack. Something about his personality, he manages to avoid the pitfall and charm. So about the idea that Brad Bird had John Barry and James Bond in mind, Mm -hmm. why do you think that is? It's noteworthy, right? Because this is not a spy movie. Its character references are not James Bond. It's about superheroes and the Fantastic Four and Superman. And yet the musical allusion is absolutely to James Bond. What do you make of that? I don't know if this is the entire answer, but it's definitely part of the answer that it sounds great. (laughs) And I think the whole mid-century modern design aesthetic for the visuals of the movie also looks great. You know, they're of a piece. They feel like comfortable partners. 
I mean, I think Giacchino was really on the same page as Bird in the desire to just do it because it sounded good. But all right, tell me the more sophisticated reason why. Well, no, I probably you'll disagree because I think it's part of my incorrect take on the movie. Uh, But the way it lands for me is that hero music, Superman music, is about righteousness and nobility and sort of old-fashioned European classical ideas of regal uprightness and possibly military, you know, the march of the great hero. And that is not what this movie is about. The movie is about heroism as a metaphor for your sense of yourself as achieving your own potential and being seen as cool. I mean, James Bond movies, there's a political background way, way in the background that he's doing this for the intelligence services because they need to keep the world safe. But then it's really about him sneaking and shooting and driving. And the exotic music is to show that his world is absolutely the highest stakes in absolutely everything. Whether he looks cool, it's significant. And the witticism he just said, that was significant. And everything is loaded with potential. And this is a movie about whether Mr. Incredible feels like his life is significant and loaded with potential. And it uses the James Bond music basically to show when he feels pretty good about himself. It really underplays whether what he's doing is for the good of all or for the good of the world. That's kind of taken for granted. And my discomfort is, I don't know if I get the impression that he actually does care about doing good. He just wants to be super, super cool. And that's valuable. It's important for people to feel good about themselves. I just feel like the choice to go with spy music rather than superhero music shows that this movie's heart is in a different place. What do you think? I don't know if I quite agree that the music in Bond films is there to make everything feel significant. Maybe significant's the wrong word, but... I think you're ascribing too much to it. I think it's there. I mean, it sounds too simple to even say, but it's there to make it sound cool. When he's driving, when he's sneaking, when he's flirting, to play up what a cool guy he is. Okay, but cool means something. I think we talked about this with Steve McQueen, where you said he's not cool. (laughs) I said Bullet wasn't cool. Of course Steve McQueen is cool. Okay, Bullet is not cool. Frank Bullet. Yeah, I actually liked your definition of cool in that episode when you said that it's an optimization of power and efficacy counterbalanced with... Effort or something, right? Yeah, lack of effort with insouciance. I mean, the important thing about James Bond is he's not just a spy, he's a gentleman spy. And he's always urbane and classy, and no matter what perils he's up against, he stays unflappable. So his music is the sound of him not getting flapped, it's the sound of him staying cool, despite everything around him. So yeah, at bottom, I do believe that John Barry wanted to make James Bond sound cool, and that Brad Bird wanted his movie to sound cool, but I also think that using Bond sounds rather than Superman sounds was the right decision for this movie because this movie is also about emotional complexity, you know, being a complete person rather than just a superhero. If the music were a simple straight-ahead hero fanfare, then it would suggest that being a hero all the time, like Mr. Incredible wants to be, is good and righteous, and like you said about what the Superman sound means, 
Instead, I think this movie's message is to inflect that sound of a hero with more realism and more complexity. I do think, and you almost said it just there, I think that a hero fanfare is about something bigger than the hero. It's kind of like saying, oh, ma'am, it's not about me. I just do this for truth, justice in the American way. And that's what this music is really about. And this is a movie about them, about Mr. Incredible. That's kind of just his role is to do superheroics. It's about Mr. Incredible, you know, growing up somewhat and learning to accept a more complex outlook on life. I think that Giacchino had that very instinct that a superhero fanfare is like the starting point of what this movie is trying to express. It needs to then have a place to go and to become complicated. Yeah, I think what he does with the motives is really inspired and, like I already said, makes the best possible case for interpreting the movie in the generous light. He has a hero motive, and he also has cool spy motive. And mutate and transition one to the other yeah. in ways that are so smart, scene for scene. At that Q&A where I saw him talk when the movie came out, I remember very clearly him saying his intention was that they are the same theme, yeah. but that it grows, it learns, it has complications added into it. Yeah, well, it's exactly what you were just saying. We're looking for the whole person so you can go from this ur motive that's never expressed of just like up a fifth, up a sixth. Then we can head down one path away from that toward James Bondism. Or we can head toward heroism. Or... Toward the end, they unify and link up, and mm -hmm. those mean something about the development of the core idea of the movie. Yeah, it's brilliantly done. It really is. And the whole thing, it's worth saying, it does seem like he took his first cue from On Her Majesty's Secret Service that was in the trailer as kind of a statement of intent about how the movie should sound. You know, just the skeleton of it, the rough contour and the rhythm... He kind of took that and ran with it and came up with this basic idea that takes all these different forms. So, yeah, what you're calling the superhero version of it, it's not an accident that it is about this interval of the fifth. Bum, bum. Going up that interval is classically, from time immemorial, a strong, bold, assertive way to start a melody to demonstrate truth and rigor and goodness and heroism. Mm -hmm. Either since time immemorial or since the 19th century. But <laughs> close enough. Close enough. Yeah, I'm sure it's all over Wagner in ways that I don't have as good a recall of as I do of things like Star Wars that sure enough starts out with a big opening fifth and Superman, which is all about that fifth interval. So in what has to be an intentional nod to the concept of a superhero theme, the basic atom here is going up that fifth. When the title hits the screen, that is what you hear. And then the next thing that it does is that it goes up a slightly stretched wider interval, a minor sixth. That's the theme for Mr. Incredible, you know, the vanilla comic book superhero. Right. And the first sequence we get here is as though, hey, in the old days when he had a show and had a fan club and <laughs> it's not an actual show, 
But the implication is that he was a celebrity superhero yeah. who had a theme and had a way of being like he was on a show. And in fact, as he's walking into his house late at night after being out doing some secret superheroing, yeah, he walks into his kitchen and he's humming his own theme song. So maybe it was a show. Maybe it really it was something that he knew was his theme. But when he's humming it, sure enough, he's humming the version of it that starts with that big, open, pure fifth. And then when he gets the secret message that's calling him out of retirement to go and be a superhero again, and you see him sit back at his desk and gaze lovingly across all of his memorabilia on the wall and think, golly, now maybe I can get to be a superhero again. This is the theme, again, the pure fifth version of fantasizing about returning to action. And this is one of my favorite cues in the movie. I think this is so well done on Giacchino's part. And this is, I think, where he comes the closest to ridding me of my worries about the movie because it says what really matters in this movie is how this guy feels. He feels like all the good things about him are in the past, and then the hope that he could feel that good about himself again is this touching, poignant, and it's harmonized in a, a really beautiful way here. Yeah, this chord, this is an inverted chord. It doesn't have the root in the bass, and the, the melody doesn't start on the root. It's all sort of floating from higher in the chord, floating out of his past, out of his deep feelings that maybe he hasn't even been admitting to himself as openly as this through the whole movie up until now. Mm -hmm. You know, God bless you, Giacchino, for putting this in here because that's the access I need. This kind of glow and poignancy of this moment when he envisions that he could be happy again. That's all Giacchino. I mean, you could give that assignment and if they had just played because it's a, you know, schematically a thought about heroism, it wouldn't have put that across, but there's just a sensitivity mm -hmm. in the way that this is done that really impresses me. Absolutely. But I do feel like Giacchino treats this version of the theme, the simple superhero version, I think he feels it as being relatively immature. Hmm. This is where he needs to grow as a person. All right, interesting. This is what I remember him saying at that Q&A, that there is an intent for the theme to start out simple and uncomplicated and to have new elements added into it as he is actualized as a fuller person. You know, the main move of doing that is instead of jumping straight up that fifth, bum, 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 to go through uh, another note on the way up, a third, and then to overshoot the fifth and to drop back down to it. Instead of bum, 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 it's bum, 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 bum. That overshooting up and then resolving back down is, I think, intended as a complication on the original superhero theme. Hmm. Let me just trace it a little bit here. So, yes, that beautiful statement of it in its, what I think is its purest form, in the purely uncomplicated form. Just the open fifth to start. He goes on from there. He takes the assignment. He gets on this cool plane and flies to a tropical island. And we hear the theme again as he's getting ready to go back into action. So 
so then he's on the island, he's fighting this robot, and I think it's in this robot fight that there's a landmark association of it. He He's out of shape, of course, and he throws out his back as he's fighting, and then the robot picks him up and unwittingly gives him a chiropractic adjustment so that he can fight it again. <laughs> if we're stopping with that moment, just a comment about that. This is an example of Giacchino's restraint. He completely gets the joke. He completely knows that it has to be played big. And he does it by just having silence at that moment so that you can focus on the joke. And he builds to the silence and comes out of it without doing the overkill of like, get ready, here comes something funny. <gasps> no, it just finds a way to stop and then finds a way to start. accomplishes what it needs to without overindulging anything, mm -hmm. even as it's all indulgent and huge and fun, but he somehow always finds a way of doing it that feels natural. Agreed, it's very organic. Yeah. And so the organic way that he comes out of the joke scores Bob rejoining the fight and turning the tables on the robot. <laughs> is this big entrance of now the melody with the complication. There's like a big, bold statement of it, like he's earned this extra note in his melody. He figured out how to beat the robot. He's taken a step forward. He's he cracked his back. <laughs> he feels better. You know, it's just part of the overall arc of his development. And this moment feels like a big moment of earning that extra note. And now that he's got it, now this is the way the theme plays for him for a while. We hear it again quieter as he has dinner with the lady that hired him. And then there's this great montage sequence where he's really happy because he gets to be superhero again and he comes back and he is enjoying his family life in a way that he hadn't been before. And then he starts working out and getting in shape. And I feel like this piece is like a reinforcement now of the new version of the theme for the new version of him, because he's remaking himself. This reinforces the ba-bum-bum-ba-bum version. And kind of, it supersedes, it's an expansion of what he has to say and what the music is saying about him. I'm going to let you finish, but I have a different take on almost everything here. So just want to at least mention that I have a different take on everything here. The thing that you're calling a complication, a maturing, a development of his theme. Yeah. I, like I said, feel that as the cool variant of the theme. And its use to me seems to call up the feeling not that he has progressed, but that he's in touch with the sense that he is cool, that it has to do with his fluctuating self-image and that sometimes he's looking at himself and thinking, I'm a hero, I'm Superman. And other times he's looking at himself and thinking, I am pretty cool. And the life's incredible again, the big band cue for the montage when he's home and he's working out and his relationship to his kids is better and his love life is better and he's got a better car and he's just like, everything is invigorated because he's been put in touch with the idea that he's pretty cool. Yes, it reinforces da 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 da, but the main theme of it, ba da da dum, ba da da dun, is yet another variant of the upper fifth, upper sixth. Giacchino is responding to each moment 
what would the theme's life in this moment be? And in this moment, wonderfully, I mean, it's such a satisfying sequence. Yeah. It finds this big band bounce and swagger. To me, the point of it is not where that is on a journey from one place to another, but that right now there is swagger. And it's impressive to me that for something that has been retro the whole time, he has still reserved this kind of swing for this moment that we get to enjoy the joke and the reference feels new even if you know mm-hmm. halfway through the movie it feels like oh now they're doing a kind of swing and cool guy thing hey that's fun that's cool and i think that shows careful planning to reserve a certain kind of band arrangement for this moment even though we've been so close to it the whole time very very smartly done you're right there are many different forms and versions of the theme there are many different ways that it can stretch and fold But I think that he is kind of contemplating these complications to the theme all along the way. And some of them are associated with his kids. I think they kind of have an input into his theme. One such thing I was thinking of is this fantastic cue, which is called on the soundtrack 100 Mile Dash Mm -hmm. for the action sequence where the kid who can run really fast like the Flash is, you know, fighting the bad guys. Running really fast, mostly, is what he's doing. Running really fast, and, I mean, my God, what xylophone playing. (laughs) Listen to that thing go. But for the big moment when he doesn't know exactly what he can do with his powers and he's running away from the bad guys in their like flying saucer contraptions and he runs out onto the water, looks down and sees, oh, <laughs> that's cool, I can run on water. It's a very, very satisfying moment. The big musical entrance that follows that... Well, it's a different version of the theme. It's still got the same upper fifth, upper minor sixth, but it's got a little scale figure moving into it. Ba ba bum ba dum, ya ba bum ba dum. This is a complication that is now associated with dash. Well, that's the sort of three-note figure that had been between the phrases in the Mr. Incredible original version of dun da 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 Sure, yeah, that was in there, but now this little atom of it is being kind of highlighted and is being teased out. You know, earlier in that cue, we had a little motif that's kind of the dash version of the theme. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
See, I heard that as the moment when the two things, the spy that we've heard all along for slinking around and being a spy, and the hero theme have now been wedded, and now there's a wholeness. They're superheroes and they're a family, which is a cool thing to be. That's the message. So we get the first half of the spy thing and the second half of the hero thing as a single theme. I am taking this idea of maturation from what I heard G. Kino say about it, that he thought of it as adding complication to the theme in order to show it maturing. I took that and ran with it as I was trying to analyze it. But, you know, the way you're feeling it as different aspirations that he has about himself, each having their own version of the theme, that works too. You know, (laughs) the beauty of music is that it doesn't have to be understood one way or another, or those understandings, you know, complement each other. Yeah, there's no words to put to the understanding that music expresses. You just sort of approximate it. Yeah, well, tell that to ourselves, you know, five years ago when we decided to make a podcast. Yeah, tell it to ourselves right now. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on. So we get to the end. The punchline is, oh, here's a new bad guy for us to fight as a family. Let's all put on our masks as a family and fight them all together. And then bang into the end credits, which, you know, is a super stylized depiction of the family doing superhero stuff together. These awesome drawings. And then, yeah, it goes every which way. And it takes all of these complications and stacks them and puts them side by side. You hear it every way. Bum ba bum, ba bum ba bum, the regular, the fifth version. Ba ba bum ba bum, the complicated version. The extra complicated version. Ya ba do ba dee ba do ba ba do ba ba do ba ba do ba ba do. Every complication he can throw in there. It's the same theme with more, with more in it, encompassing more things about the characters. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, first of all, mm-hmm. the end credits are not by Michael Giacchino. This end credits, which is great, is it's super great. arranged, and that really means arranged, by a guy named Gordon Goodwin, known for his Big Fat Band, which is a big band ensemble in L.A., and he is a specialist in big band arranging, although he also has done all kinds of commercial movie arranging and composing, so he has a lot of skills there. This was composed originally by Gordon Goodwin and not arranged from a Giacchino sketch? I believe what I read is that Gordon Goodwin said Giacchino gave him the themes in the form they should appear, and then he made the piece that used those themes. All right, well, it's fantastic. It is fantastic, and when I watched it the first time and didn't know that, I thought, oh, here at the end, they seem really to have completely transcended the referential sound. This feels like I'm just hearing a big band performance right now. It did feel like a slightly different angle of approach on this material, even though it is 100% the material laid out by Giacchino in the proper forms for us to have reached at the end of the movie. Yes, it's the main theme appears in its unified fully matured form and another thing that the theme matures into is the rhythm of five which Mm -hmm. presumably comes from the Lalo Schifrin Mission Impossible it sure does to the movie dum dum bum 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 that rhythm I love it I love it I love it every time yeah so you've said 
Chikino has a specific line that he writes to that dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. that gets earned that really emerges into the movie at the point when the family all joins up mm-hmm. and so the end credits lives in it I don't know if it's Goodwin's idea or Chikino's but then he turns that bass line da, 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 has it played in the melody instruments Yeah, so that's a great arrangement, and it is a great landing place for the whole movie to have earned its way there. So for all that, yes, there is a lot of carefully mapped motivic stuff that goes on. I think, to its credit, the viewer doesn't notice most of that stuff. Mm -hmm. It just feels right throughout. Absolutely. I think the thing the viewer does notice is the level of elusiveness I think that's sort of characteristic of Pixar that instead of just making a superhero movie, they made a, well, what if a superhero movie were really a family movie? And then we get to kind of enjoy the distance we have here. Uh-huh. We have the costume designer of the superhero costumes in the movie talking about the costumes, which is kind of a funny knowingness. And the music has a kind of fun knowingness, as we've said. And Chikino is, I think, right in front of the viewer's eyes, constantly navigating whether you feel that the thing going on is primarily a reference or a genuine dramatic moment. You know, you could go through this and play the game of figuring out which moment from James Bond is the model. (laughs) You can probably name some of the things that must have been the temp tracks. Do you want to do that? Go ahead. We should do a little of that. I guess that's our job. So this moment here where Syndrome finally reveals himself and says, I was the twerp from the beginning of the movie and you weren't nice to me and now I'm a villain. And Mr. Incredible is hes being held by the robot. He's in danger and he gets thrown around and maybe he's going to die. It's cool, huh? Zero point energy. I save the best inventions for myself. Am I good enough now? Chikino's score is this rolling, ominous pattern. Brilliant. Over and over, and it builds and becomes more and more dark. And this... I think, John, you and I agreed, sounds a great deal like, I forget what the cue is called, the laser beam, I think it's called, right? It's called the laser beam, yeah. <laughs> the cue from Goldfinger when Sean Connery is looking at the laser beam coming up between his legs and his death is impending. Yes, in fact, that's when Mr. Goldfinger expects him mm-hmm. to die. Turns out not to die in the sequence. But he expects him to He's die. He's expected to die. Yeah. His expectations are subverted. That's right. That's good drama. Especially when you say exactly what your expectations are. Yeah, he doesn't expect him to talk. But he does expect him to die. But he ends up talking and not dying. (laughs) That's how he gets you. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a tip for writers. Um, So I can imagine them taking that cue and putting it in here as temp music. Which they almost certainly did. Oh, absolutely. To praise Giacchino here, he does not resemble it so heedlessly that it just sounds like a copycat. But he also doesn't lose sight of that we want to feel a little bit like we know we're seeing the scene from a James Bond movie where the villain starts talking to the hero and the hero, you know, we need to recognize that 
this is a cultural illusion. It's made explicit in the movie. There's a bit about how... You got me monologuing. Yeah, Bond villains are prone to this <laughs> fatal flaw that they monologue at the hero when they've got them in their clutches. You sly dog! You got me monologuing! I can't believe it! So yes, exactly. It needs to refer to the source of the phenomenon of the Bond-type villain monologue. And yet then, what I so admire, we know, yes, this is like a Bond scene, we recognize it, but then as it continues to play and build force and Giacchino does not get suckered into scoring a bunch of action, he gets thrown, he gets flipped yes. off a cliff and all of this, he just plays through the scene and it becomes more and more serious and dramatically valid, a low moment for our hero, right before our eyes. You're right, it ignores him being thrown and diving in the water and all of that, which is a great move for this moment in the movie because it really sells the introduction of the bad guy. It's not just the individual actions of being thrown around, it's that now we're up against something here. This is the real force of the movie. Yeah, this is real. The movie has been about, is the whole movie kind of, uh, let's just indulge some mm -hmm. stuff we like, superheroes, and is this whole adventure kind of Mr. Incredible just going on a trip to explore a, a fantasy of his? And at this moment, the music says, it is now real. The stakes are happening. Yeah, exactly. This is really selling the stakes. And the moment when the pure repetition, when the looping of that figure changes a little bit, the strings like jump up an octave and reestablish the figure, but it's now moving into a new territory and doing a slightly different motion. I feel like that's this moment of heightening that really takes the illusion and makes it, you know, earn its keep, makes it do the work. You know, it comes and it meets this movie and it really is about this movie because he's feeling it sincerely. All right, so what's the next example of that? Even more spectacular example of this. Mm -hmm. Very soon after, one of the next sequences, Mr. Incredible survives, and then he sneaks into the fortress. Some really wonderful old-school sneaking music here. Yep, yep. Modeled very carefully on the James Bond models, but cued so attentively to the action of the Pixar-paced animated movie. The John Barry style would be to be a little bit blockier. Mm -hmm. I think Giacchino is a much nimbler composer than John Barry. Yeah, and it's just a much nimbler era, you know? It's 2004 yeah. scoring with all of the moves and sounds and xylophones and flutes of the 60s. And harp. And harp, yeah. Harp is so key to the sound, the harp and the flute. Yeah, it's very gratifying to me to hear this kind of just bread and butter sneaking routines, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. clonks and plinks, done with such such sensitivity to style and motion. Anyway, he works his way into the fortress. Then he goes into a darkened room and looks at the computer there and sees the oh my god moment. Now I see what the plot has been all along. He's been killing every superhero he can to refine and refine his horrible Omnidroid robot. Mr. Incredible is looking at all of the names of the dead heroes. And it's also intercutting with Helen back home, realizing that Bob's been lying to her and is off being a superhero alone in danger. And this is a highlight moment for the music. Anyone who's seen the movie remembers that, oh yeah, that's a powerful moment. Uh, what did we say we thought was probably the John Barry precursor to this? Something from, was it Moonraker or? Uh... No, but it was something in space. You Only Live Twice. It's from You Only Live Twice. The capsule in are. space. The capsule in space from You Only Live Twice.
I don't think that this reference is as clear as the reference to the laser beam. It's a little similar. There's a repeating figure that builds and builds, but this is, you know, it's totally Chikino's own repeating figure. And it's wonderful. It's such a great effect. You were, you were about to say why. Well, it evolves in its referentiality, in what it's expressing emotionally, in how much attention it wants from you in each of these different ways, so seamlessly, without doing anything fancy but making all the right moves. What the chords are under this figure change, and what the figure is changes right before your eyes in such an undetectable way that you just feel the feeling of What's going on harmonically in this sequence is interesting because there's an element to the Barry Bond scores that he mostly stays away from. You know, the chords you hear right at the beginning of the Goldfinger song. These chords that clash a little bit. They move sort of too far for comfort. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's an element in a lot of James Bond music, this kind of... uh, Yeah, these cross-related chords. Cross-related chords that show you that James Bond's world is emotionally scary, treacherous. Mm -hmm. Things might be too hard for ordinary people to handle, my goodness. Yeah, you're right, and the chords in this are the closest he gets to that, I think. Giacchino mostly avoids that because I think it has too much of a throwback sound for most of what goes on here. It would call attention to itself, but he finds the way into it here. And we sort of hear it coming and we think, Oh, it's kind of like a James Bondy thing, but this merits it, yeah. this conspiracy that he's seeing here. And through this whole sequence that mostly seems like the same thing repeating it over and over, he changes the harmony very subtly, he changes the orchestration subtly as it builds up, and he finally builds up at the end of it to the full Goldfinger muted trumpet growl. which he in the score writes wah time. (laughs) Can we take a moment to recognize the funny stuff that we got to see him write in the score? Or wait, we're not supposed to say we have No, we can say this is one of these scores that, you know, it's absolutely, we're not supposed to have our hands on it. But if you Google hard enough, some things are floating around on the web that probably shouldn't be. So we were able to see what he wrote to the musicians and he tries to keep them amused. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, some of it, I'm not sure if we can say on the podcast, but <laughs> he just drops whimsical things in there. He tells the sax solo, wailing solo a la Peter Gunn, and then when it comes back, he writes more wailing and gnashing of teeth. He's just in, like, goofy, jokey mode through the whole score. And I saw him on the DVD extra about the score saying he wants everyone to be having a good time in the studio. He wants recording it to be a joyous experience. And they check in with some of the musicians. They are having a blast. How could you not? How could you not? It's just brimming over with fun. Another thing that he wants the recording to be like is he wants it to be referential, not just of the specific you know moves that John Barry would make. He wants it to sound like it in the sheer audio quality of the sound. He has, what's the name of the mixer that he used? Dan Wallen. Dan Wallen, who is an old school recording engineer, was brought in to record this. Giacchino instructed him to do it on physical analog tape. This was recorded in one big room. He insisted that everybody be together in the same room, didn't want it to be segmented out and have some sections record in one place and some sections record in a different day. 
He wanted everybody to be in the same room so they could all hear each other and all groove together. And he says like, let's just pretend we have three microphones and that's it and let's just get it done. They had more microphones than that really, but it's really being recorded on analog tape because Dan Wallen says that that makes the brass sound the best, and this is such a brass-forward score. Yeah, this movie had the actual same person mixing it as Bullet did. There's actual continuity in the staff of the music production here. Yeah, and that stuff is important to Chikino, and I applaud him for it. Anyway, what I was going to say is... Anyway. He builds up this scene. First, we kind of get the reference, then we get drawn into the drama of it, and then... He does the full wah, wah. The trumpets are actually doing that thing that's pretty much too exaggerated to ever do without being a reference. But because we've kind of established that we know what the reference is and that the stakes are high enough, he pulls it off. And that he's really living in the music. Absolutely pulls it off. And it kind of, my experience of that moment is that at the end of this sequence, I have been drawn out of thinking about the reference, and then I'm kind of reminded of the reference again, but I'm immune to that taking me out. It's a magic trick. To me, it's the best possible outcome of being asked to specifically imitate certain things. And you can tell that he loved being asked to imitate this stuff. I would love being asked to imitate this stuff. So I can absolutely relate. Here are a couple more things that he was clearly asked to imitate, I think. Yeah. Like the piece when Helen Elastigirl comes to Bob's rescue. She rustles up an airplane from her friend who gives her an airplane. She's flying in to save the day. And this has got this very deftly deployed snare drum through the whole thing. I think it is definitely based on the cue at the end of Goldfinger when Pussy Galore and the Flying Circus, the female pilots, probably is the inspiration for it, for this scene about a female pilot. I'm sure this track from Goldfinger, the Dawn Raid on Fort Knox, was the temp for this. But, you know, great. And then when they take the rocket back from the island to the city where they live to fight the big robot that Syndrome sent there. Yeah, this is pretty conspicuous. This is a track called Road Trip in the Giacchino score. Again, with the repetitive figure, with the snare drum, the way the instrumentation is, it's very reminiscent of this cue from from Russia with Love this time called 007 Takes the Lecter when he is uh, this action sequence where he steals the code-breaking machine. And I think this is material that shows up in other Bond films as well. Yeah, I think that was Barry's attempt to try and get away from the Monty Norman theme so that he could really own it, and he just couldn't, but that's kind of his recurring James Bond theme for several movies there. If I'm guessing what cue they had on the temp, it's this one. Mm-hmm. When I was digging through, trying to play the temp track game, I thought, oh, this track from the uh, Diamonds Are Forever soundtrack really maps pretty closely onto the Life's Incredible Again. This is just casino music in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. 
listen, it's the same tempo and the same key and the same swing. I think you probably had this. Maybe, maybe, but like, Life's Incredible Again is better than this. It definitely is. Yep, Giacchino understands the assignment well beyond just the temp. Yeah. Another thing, I actually can confirm what the temp is. When I was watching the 100 Mile Dash sequence, I thought, oh, this is a little bit in a different movie tradition. This kind of seems like a Star Wars scene, and it seems like Giacchino is calling on his knowledge of John Williams. This feels like a little like a John Williams way of scoring an action sequence where you make a kind of uh, set piece of virtuosically tricky playing and match all the turns and the you know his expertise at when to anticipate a hit and when to be surprised by it and when to push the action and when to pull back from the action really good instincts and i thought this is like a john williams action sequence i wonder what the model for it was i found out because they posted their animatic that they did of this sequence and in the animatic they are using music from uh, minority report mm. some john williams running around music But what's really telling is it has that spirit and that energy and that overall approach, but he did not mimic the actual motives or moves or chords. He just gets what the point of the temp was and then composes. And that's what temp scores should do. Yes, Mm -hmm. you can hear James Bond through a lot of these cues, but the point was for you to be able to hear it, and that's why you can still hear it. You can't hear Minority Report through this because the point wasn't to be able to hear it, and Giacchino knew exactly how much to take. So another thing you can really clearly hear James Bond behind is the villain theme that we haven't even talked about or played, but he writes a full-on syndrome theme. Da-da-da-da. I mean, we talked about some cues that are about that character syndrome already, both of those incredible, inexorably building up repetitive cues. And those are based on this material, I think. And he, you know, as is obligatory when Incrediboy shows up at the very beginning and is just annoying, isn't a villain yet, we hear a dinky version of what will become his theme later. He also has a motive that seems mostly associated with the Omnidroid, or at least it's an alternative place to go for bad guy stuff. This da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, I guess that is its own thing. Again, I felt that as being continuous with the syndrome material. Just like with the hero material that has a couple of different guises, I think he is really smart about which things each of these is conveying. I think that the Goldfinger Syndrome tune has to do with Syndrome's personal drive to do evil and, you know, his personal energy in the movie. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da is more to do with a world of evil or, you know, the robot, some kind of evil as a generic impersonal force that might surround them and threaten them. I mean, these chords, these are all the James Bond chord, the minor, major nine. Right, that's true. And that was John Barry's kind of vision of the flavor of a whole universe, was going to just keep dwelling on this chord, which is 
you know, anticipates an ending, and it is an ending, but it's an unsettled ending, and it's a very, very flavorful and you know, intrinsically mysterious chord. Chikino is able to make a whole world of that chord, but then also step away from it easily into other styles and other voices because there are more layers than that going on in this movie. Yeah, it's a very impressive score overall for selling, like I said, a movie that I, as I watch it, I feel caught on, like, nails sticking out that I feel like, why did they put that nail there? Why are these things there? But the music sees the movie that it wants to be and scores that, and so I have nothing but admiration for the score. Well, I'm really glad that we can agree on that because I hold the score very, very highly, and I am blithely unburdened by the problems that you are bumping on in the movie. And I just want to reassure everybody listening that I am definitely right. So don't worry about it. I don't appreciate it. that, John. I don't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is just a wonderful achievement. Again, it's astonishing that this is his first feature film. Maybe it's not astonishing just because of the work that he was already doing. And he was already, you know, imagining that he was scoring things this big, this fun, this exciting, this thoughtfully. You know, that's the thought and the skill that he was bringing to Alias and to <laughs> Secret Weapons over Normandy before this. But I think he rightfully found a home as one of the one of the big guys in Hollywood. Here's something sour I can say right at the end. Oh, great. Oh, jeez. Oh, oh, we knew we needed something, <laughs> something to ruin it. At least you admit that we're at the end. Oh, we're definitely at the end. Yes, as I've said repeatedly here, I think that the skill of being retro in the best way mm-hmm. for the reasons that people want to be retro is wonderful. And this is the guy to do it. And that ends up being the guy that Hollywood wants now because Hollywood is constantly looking backward and trying to kind of summon up the fun of a thing from years ago. Let's do Star Trek again. Who can we hire who will do Star Trek again and make it seem like a valid goal? Let's get Chikino to do it. Let's do Mission Impossible some more. <laughs> who can we hire to like make sure that doesn't seem like a stupid waste of time? Chikino knows how to do that for some reason. Let's make sure that Chikino is here validating our not being willing to be original. He somehow makes not being original seem valid. And I admire him incredibly for being able to do that. That doesn't mean I always think that this is a great thing to be doing. And I think that The Incredibles working so well and pulling this off, I think this set Hollywood and film scores believing, yeah, we can just do that. Let's just pick something cool out of the past and then be cool that way. It's a much higher wire act than this movie makes it seem. Hmm. I wish people had been more scared off of it than they were. (laughs) So you're saying he did his job too well. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Well, listen, I take your point about the cravenness of Hollywood only doing established intellectual property. I do wish there was more original stuff being made with new franchises and new tentpoles. You can put up new tentpoles, I think. That said, boy, did I have a great time with (laughs) Mission Impossible and with Chikino scores for Mission Impossible. And with Chikino scores for the Star Trek movies. And hey, you know, he was the first person to score a Star Wars movie. That's right. Other than John Williams. Yeah, we're going to make some Star Wars stuff that's not really Star Wars, but it's got to seem good enough to get all the Star Wars fans in here. Who can do it? Who can do it? Chikino can do it, and he can. He can always do it. It is astounding. 
I think he is also capable of doing really original things for original movies. I think his score for Jojo Rabbit that I called out a couple years ago is yeah, yeah, really a standout for getting done a very difficult thing. Well, you know, he's beloved for his score to Up, which is just a completely original property. Absolutely, that, that's uh, true. Pixar just pulled out of the air, and then he wrote beloved, touching music for that. Right, he won an Oscar for that. So he has range well beyond being, you know, the guy who can do pastiche without it sounding like pastiche. But that's a fulfilling career in itself at this point. Turns out. Yeah. Okay, let's see where we turn out <laughs> now. Good segue. <laughs> All right, here is the old lottery ball machine. Yeah, so uh, things are going pretty well with our Patreon. Uh, by the way, we've got a Patreon. You can hear bonus content that you can't hear otherwise if you subscribe there. And the other thing that you get to do if you're a patron is that you get to vote on what movie we do next. You get to narrow down the selections that go into that lottery ball machine that you hear rolling around. There. That's right. In a convoluted system where you vote, but it's still random, <laughs> you get to vote on what is subject to the random choice that we actually do right now. Yes. As is no surprise to us, our listeners have some very sophisticated and interesting tastes and have filled the ball machine with some cool stuff. And let's see what comes out of it now. All right. Yeah? I have reached in. Okay, okay. And the number I have pulled out indicates to me that the next score will be... Yes? Apparently we will be talking about the 1982 sword and sorcery epic Conan the Barbarian, score <laughs> by Basil Polidorus. Wow, really? Really. Okay. <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah, boy, this got a lot of very lofty sentiment about it that I, I admit I am not familiar with this. So I, I have never seen it, but I know by reputation that its score is beloved. This is our second Schwarzenegger movie. Mm -hmm. But it's our first barbarian movie. Uh, mm. Is it maybe debatable? I mean, a lot of people say like Stanley Kowalski is kind of a barbaric character. <laughs> um. Boy, if I wasn't comfortable with the moral messages of The Incredibles, I can't wait to watch Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> Well, I uh, I certainly am not predisposed, at least as of now, to defend <laughs> the messaging in Conan the Barbarian. But who knows? Who knows how it will affect me? Who knows? That's the excitement of this show. The only way to find out what traumas we've experienced or maybe changes of worldview, the only way to find out how we were affected is to tune in and hear us processing on air. And this show is about nothing if not process. This show is in process, aren't we all? I'm kind of looking forward to this, Andy. I think it's going to be cool. Conan the Barbarian, next time, by Basil <laughs> Polduris. He's definitely a worthy composer, I know that. Basil Polduris is a name that ought to be on our wall. We will yeah. put it up on the wall with the next episode. Yeah, and congratulations to everybody who voted for it. Uh, our condolences to everyone who voted for all the other stuff, which is, you know, most people voted for other stuff. It's true. Because everyone has to vote for something, and then the ball machine is cruel. Isn't it? But uh, you know what else is cruel as a barbarian? Get in there and vote. Uh, <laughs> make sure that you've got the balls you want getting into the ball machine if you join us on Patreon. You can also check in with us on Twitter at ScoreSettlers. Mm -hmm. Leave a review on the podcast app. There you go. Tell your friends. Do everything. Do everything. Please do everything. Just like Mr. Incredible and his family. That's right. Don't do it alone. <laughs>
be true to yourself and and nothing further. Please be true to yourself. Don't let me get in the way of being true to yourself. <laughs> well, being true to myself, I love The Incredibles. I love the movie. I did when I first saw it, and I still do. I love the score when I first heard it, and I still do. And I am true to that. And I am true to saying a bunch of stuff that I told you I didn't want to say. And I did it anyway. That's the moral. Sorry about that, everybody. See you next time. Okay, let's go. Bye. Bye.